Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. On Commons People This Week, a year of staying at home. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. What has Boris Johnson learnt? This is something that we will all remember and be dealing with in different ways for probably, for certainly in my case, for as long as, uh, as I live. It's... And what will the voters say in May? And I think that um, there's undoubtedly a vaccine bounce um, for the government. Um... Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth's here. Hi. Hi Rachel. And we've got the Tory peer and polling guru, Lord Robert Hayward. Hi. Hi Robert. Well, a year after Boris Johnson first ordered us to stay at home, we are still staying at home. At least after 12 months of COVID restrictions, 120,000 deaths and the biggest recession for 300 years, things are starting to look up. The PM has insisted the roadmap to lifting lockdown remains on course despite a vaccine war with the EU. And this week, he said the past year would be on his mind for the rest of his life. Let's listen. Beth, I certainly think that this is something that we will all remember and be dealing with in different ways for probably, for certainly in my case, for as long as, uh, as I live. It's been an extraordinary uh, moment in our, in our, in our history and a deeply difficult and, and distressing period. Uh, Paul, uh, do you think that was an admission from the PM that he'll be forever haunted by his mistakes during the pandemic? Well, I think it's actually that's probably a bit of a stretch because what he, he did precisely say was that he we will all remember this probably as as and for him as long as I live, uh, and he said he'd be dealing with it probably in certain ways as long as I live. Now that the PM's not sort of prone to self introspection or anything like that, you know, he's not that kind of guy. Um, but you would have thought that maybe in a quiet moment maybe this week when he was doing that moment of remembrance that it between him and his conscience um he's having more of an interesting chat than perhaps he's having with the rest of the world um and it may be some time before we we learn what he really really has thought about this i mean obviously he came close himself with suffering from the virus in the hospital but he he kind of Although there's a brief moment when he came out of hospital and he was very, very, very serious about um, the, the debt he owed to the NHS in that famous video, he quite quickly reverted to the old Boris where he was sort of, you know, upbeat and everything was looking forward. And I think we got a flavour of that this week. And although all the, the papers after uh, this week's press conference were full of, you know, front page pictures of him looking quite gloomy, what struck me about the press conference is how he wasn't that gloomy. He did a sort of, you know, he did say a little bit about, um, the, the the need for a national memorial, but he very quickly went on the on the front foot and started talking about, you know, jab by jab, we're all going to recover, and it was all quite upbeat in the end. And even you know there were the old Johnsonian touches, like you know just grinning about a reference to his father Stanley, that kind of stuff. And you saw even more of that later that day in the 1922 committee, where he did this famous joke about greed. And yesterday in the, in the liaison committee, again he was back to the old Johnson, and so. 
I don't know. For me, it seems as though we're not going to get, certainly not yet anyway, a sort of Tony Blair style um, real moment of reckoning with himself, never mind the rest of us, because there was that famous press conference after the Chilcot report, and it, it struck me this week, just the contrast between the two of them. Um, after Chilcot, uh, Blair was on the back foot completely, and Blair said, uh, I express more sorrow, regret and apology than you can ever know or believe. And that was the first glimpse into the, the conscience of Tony Blair, what he really, the toll that had really taken of the Iraq decision on him. And he got the feeling that maybe it was a Catholic thing. I don't know what it is, but he, 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 he looked into his soul and he perhaps didn't necessarily like what he'd seen and that none of us would really ever understand that. With Boris Johnson, you don't really get even a glimpse of that, I suppose. Not yet anyway. Yeah, Robert, is part of the reason for that, perhaps, that Boris Johnson isn't really feeling a huge amount of pressure from the public over his response to the pandemic? No, I think it, it's not that. Uh, Boris is a very different sort of person from Tony Blair. And as Paul's just said, he has this characteristic of being very positive, very outgoing, very rarely publicly introspective. He is introspective uh, from what uh, I gather from people who really know him, but it's not going to be that sort of uh, performance, behavior, reaction that you're going to get from him. It'll be more in the changes of action that we'll see. And it's quite interesting, although both Paul and I have just said that we're back to the old Boris in many ways, we're not. He is very strongly concerned about the third lockdown and a possibility of the fourth one. He's learned from his experiences of the first and second lockdowns, and he's being much less libertarian than I'm sure his natural instincts would allow, normally require, because he has learned and he's influenced very heavily by what's gone before. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you, because you are obviously a polling expert, the UK's got one of the highest death tolls in the world and, and one of the biggest recessions, but the Tories haven't really suffered in the polls. Um, would you would you think, say that assertion's correct? And why do you think that is? What's underlying that, do you think? Yeah, I'm not even sure that one accepts the data in relation to deaths. I think in the long run, we'll actually see a lot of information. If you go back a few months, people were saying we had the worst death toll. It's now being adjusted. And there's a series of other countries, the nearest of which is Belgium. We may have had a higher death toll. And I think in the long run, we'll have to judge it. What was striking, and you see this, for example, from a YouGov poll, which tracks government's popularity across the world. And the, the British government, Boris's government, plunged uh, in May into June, not just because of testing, not just because of PPE, but because of Dominic Cummings' trip to Barnard Castle, etc. What is striking, because YouGov does this poll across the world, is if, if you actually look at France, Italy, Spain and Germany at the moment, the one country where the government's popularity is rising is the UK and rising quite markedly back to a level that the government hasn't seen since last May, whereas France and Germany are falling off the bottom of the graph, which may partly explain the EU vaccine row and their reactions to it. So it does sound about right. There seems to be enormous political pressure on European leaders, which might be behind this 
vaccine war. But Rachel, just just to uh, think about Labour for a minute, that they got a new leader in Keir Starmer in the middle of the pandemic, um, and they decided to take this approach of constructive opposition. Looking back over the last year, did they get that right, or should they be cashing in more at the polls now? Obviously, there's a vaccine bounce for the Tories, but nonetheless. Yeah, and I, I suppose Robert will be able to speak to this a little bit more, but um, there's a lot of research that says the support for the governing party goes up during crises like like this one. So I wonder if Labour's tried to be careful not to look like it's, you know, sort of carping from the sidelines or being too critical or causing problems at a very serious time. The, the, I think they would probably say that there have been some occasions where they've departed from government policy, for example, they called for the um, circuit breaker lockdown um, in the in the autumn, long before um, Boris Johnson was prepared to consider it. But I think the way that they've tried to ex- distinguish themselves has been um, sort of how how they plan to win the peace, if you like, and a lot of that is kind of being led by um, the frontbencher Rachel Reeves with being quite critical of how the Tories have used contracts during the the crisis and it's kind of like a sweet spot politically for them because they can sort of continue to press this sort of Tory cronyism lines and it's a good way to sort of demonstrate what they'd say their values were to the public so I think how they've dealt with it is how is one that will probably judge a bit further in the future, I think. I mean, Robert, did you have any thoughts about any of that? First of all, is this phenomenon of government governing parties doing well in crises correct? And do you think that's what's happened here? And second of all, is there any evidence that Labour's kind of um, criticism of the cronyism or alleged cronyism around contracts and things like that during COVID has, is cutting through? No, I think the, the question of support for a government in time of crisis is correct. But what uh, the events of PPE testing and Dominic Cummings managed to do is d- destroy that element in this country. The pro-government sense lasted longer in Germany and France, for example, uh, and Italy as well. Um, but as I said just now, it's it's literally gone off the bottom of the graph now for some of those countries in the last four to five to six weeks, coinciding with this surge in, in vaccination in this country and appallingly low figures in, in the other countries. In relation to the, the question of cronyism, etc., I think what we're seeing is the public reaction to the latest main event, which is the level of vaccination. And therefore, the problems associated with cronyism and testing, etc., have disappeared away from people's minds. It is striking how many people, when they when you tell somebody else, they say they're going for a jab, you know, people wish them the best of luck. You know, nobody would have done that about a flu jab or anything like that. Making it very difficult for Keir Starmer to have an effect in the circumstances. Labour, I guess, privately are desperately hoping that the public are going to give the NHS credit. Uh, in other words, it just further underlines how much this country loves the NHS and the, the genius of of putting the NHS on those vote leave buses. Yeah. Uh, you know, anything to the NHS. And, um it seems to me as though Labour failed so far to say this is down to the NHS and it's because they felt as though they can't say, well, actually, Boris Johnson's had nothing to do with this because that's plainly untrue. And I think that's been 
I think Hartlepool might crystallise that for us. We can talk about Hartlepool later, but I think that's that's quite interesting. Um, the, for me, Robert was right about the way the PM's makeup, the way he thinks, the way he behaves um, was bang on, which is that there is a private Boris Johnson, but he very, very rarely reveals it even to fellow ministers. And it's he's very close in a um, private family circle that sees what he's like, the people who call him Alex rather than Boris. Um, and that um, that's why I think the most revealing thing he said at the liaison committee was my impression, my impression is there's a huge wisdom in the public's feeling about uh, vaccination passports. And it's again, it's like he has realized the pennies dropped over the past year. He hasn't changed in lots of ways, but one thing he has seemed to have done is is parked his his desire for personal liberty and responded to what the public really want on the pandemic and the public overwhelmingly time and after time want a reassuring safety first approach and I, I find that really interesting um, that maybe it's his pollsters maybe it's the focus group saying look if you do anything to divert from that this could be you could ruin the vaccine bounce I don't know I can understand Labour's view in these things but I think the vaccine uh, policy, the whole approach of negotiations is so closely tied with Boris uh, and Matt Hancock and the government that it's difficult for it to become an NHS related thing. And it probably wouldn't anyway. But again, it's the fact that it's become a public splat, public spat with leaders across Europe, which has put Boris and, and Matt Hancock very much in the front of the dispute. Um, and therefore, it is clearly perceived as a UK government achievement. And I really do think the European leaders, and I'm speaking here as a, as a Remainer, but it is just such a most appalling performance. I think at the moment I'd be tempted if there were another referendum to vote leave tomorrow for, because of the appalling way the European governments and the European Commission have handled this whole saga. And it's handed to Boris and the government a victory. There's no question about that. Yeah, I'd love to see a Remain Leave poll now, actually. After, <laughs> uh, well, after this vaccine. If, Paul said we might come to Hartlepool later on, but if the vaccine row continues... Ah, so, yes, hold that thought. Let's okay. widen this out, because <laughs> the first electoral test of how the parties have dealt with COVID is nearly upon us. So-called purda for civil servants starts today, ahead of local elections on May the 6th. The votes will provide the first ballot box test for Keir Starmer's leadership, a chance to gauge how the Tories will perform in the Red Wall now Brexit is done, and the elections could have massive implications for Scottish independence. Let's hear the Labour leader indulge in a classic bit of expectations management. Now we're in the vaccine rollout. It's going well, and that's a good thing, and we're completely supportive of that. And I think that um, there's undoubtedly a vaccine bounce um, for the government. Um, and I want the vaccine programme... hard, doesn't it? Well, I want the vaccine programme to succeed, and I'm not going to say anything um, against it. Um, and therefore, you know, if it rolls out quicker or more efficiently than anywhere else, that is a good thing, and I'm hugely supportive. But does it lead to a vaccine bounce... Um, in the polls. I think it does. It may not be the only reason, but it's very significant. Robert, let's come to you first, because we were sort of on it there. Yeah. Um, Brexit and, and Corbyn, 
aren't well corbyn certainly isn't a factor now and and the kind of conventional wisdom is brexit isn't a factor now in the red wall and we've got this hartlepool by-election of course which will be a great test of uh red wall voters but um you are possibly suggesting otherwise it, if the vaccine row continues with the eu then it plays into the conservative party's hands at local elections it has implications in scotland and at hartlepool if there isn't a vaccine row running from the middle of april onwards then brexit is done most people just want to get it over with now clearly businessmen and all sorts of other people are still grappling with the problems associated with it but in electoral terms it is done unless there is an ongoing vaccine right and 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 how could that play out do you, do you think it would be wise for the conservatives to maybe obviously not prolong the vaccine row because that's you know that you'd have to think they're thinking of the national interest over that but how could they exploit it in electoral terms i, I think they'd be unwise to exploit it I, I, because as you say um people would see through it uh, and it comes back to this question of nhs health management at the moment boris is succeeding by having provided the vaccines and i'm putting all that in inverted commas um as a common perception so certainly they would be very unwise to use it i think brexit as i say is out of the way but if the row continues and it can happen in very accidental ways or chance ways you've had the comments today from senior management of astrazeneca saying they would never again act in the way they have done at providing a new drug at minimum pricing because of the behavior of the eu leaders the issues have to be raised by other organizations and governments it would be very unwise for the tory party in whatever guise to try and artificially maintain the vaccine row to their benefit uh, for an election because i think that would would uh, boomerang on them badly how does that play out in voters minds then do, do they go to the polls and they're kind of looking at the two main parties and they're seeing that the eu is possibly threatening our vaccine rollout and they go well who's the best guy or party to deal with this and they put a tick next to conservatives is that is that kind of the i'm trying to get into the thought process of voters i i they do and that's where the conservative party has to be very careful but there are two other factors that i think are worth bearing in mind one is that the conservatives and to a lesser extent the labor party which is why rachel made the comments about co about the difficulties for keir starmer they have been front of picture for the last 12 months there's been no electioneering no leaflet delivery no council by elections nothing and therefore the lib dems and the greens have been at real disadvantage and even the labor party have to some extent been at a disadvantage in recent weeks so that's the first things so the elections will be in people's minds in a very different way from normal probably in just two dimensional ie labor and conservative as against multi dimensional which you would often get and the second thing is although the elections are on may the 6th all the indications already are that a very high proportion of the population will vote by post 
Normally, it's about 30%. This time, it could well be about 60% of all votes cast will be in by post. And because postal votes go out in early April, they'll arrive on people's doorsteps by about the 20th of April, say-ish, it varies. About a third of all votes will have been cast by about the 22nd, 23rd of April. It's a very, very different form of election we've got this time. And that's a factor which all the political parties are going to have to be aware of. We've been, we've been talking around Hartlepool, Rachel, yeah. um, which the Tories are hoping to take from Labour. And it's, you know, the lobby's very excited because it's a by-election in the Red Wall, the first one since Brexit is done. Uh, what's, what's the latest up there? Right. Well, um, the Labour Party's picked um, Paul Williams. He's a, a doctor. He's been doing uh, shifts in the COVID clinic at Hartlepool Hospital. Um, the Tories have yet to pick their candidate. We don't yet know whether the um, Reform Party is going to stand. This is sort of the party that was the Brexit party previously, and they took a massive chunk of the, the vote in December 2019 in Hartlepool. Um, there's been quite a lot of uh, flack being <laughs> taken by um, Paul, Paul Williams, not not least because um, some sexist comments that he'd made in the past have emerged. I think he used the words Tory MILF. Um, a lot of the local papers are also reporting that he had previously been selected to be um, Labour's police and crime commissioner for, for candidate for the area. Um, so they're kind of saying that he looks opportunistic in doing that. Um, to switch straight to being the, the parliamentary candidate. But I actually think um, even though it's 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 Labour's seat currently and they, they could lose it, I actually think there's more pressure on the Conservatives and particularly on Boris Johnson to to gain this seat. Because I think if they if if they're unable to gain it, um, given how close it was, there's only really a handful of votes in it, like um, in twenty in 2019, uh, people will kind of potentially start to say that this, the 2019 was the high watermark for the Conservatives in the in the Red Wall. Um, but I also think a lot of the stuff that we've been saying about the vaccine is just so, so relevant. I think the, the vaccine bounce could actually be even bigger than predicted at the moment, because I just think people are, are so desperate for positivity after the year that we've had and precisely because of everything that's happened with um you know with Dominic Cummins with um with sort of us unlocking and then locking back down and there being a lot of chaos all the time I think people are just so desperate to put this period behind us that whichever candidate can successfully channel um the positive feelings people get from the vaccine I think it will be you know doing doing the best you think actually one of the most interesting things about Hartlepool, well, for me, is that um, the, the Tories so far, straight out of the blocks, have been basically going for Paul Williams as being this big Remainer. Okay, that's the big thing, um, and they'd be they'd be very wise to to choose a very local candidate who sounds and looks like Hartlepool, uh, who happens to be a big big Brexiteer and has a record to prove it. Um, that that's the kind of given. But what I find interesting is that. Just as the 2019 general election turned into the second referendum that everyone uh, was talking about, but it was in a totally different form. In other words, people did get the people's vote. They got a second referendum in the form of 2019 general election. And the message was overwhelmingly, look, we told you so. Um, uh, well, let's tell them again. And so this, if, if the Tories play it cannily, Hartlepool could be the third referendum, the third chance to say, look, we're even. We're out. 
Um, and um, this candidate, he doesn't stand for us. And I think the we saw it in PMQs this week. The PM actually had a jibe at, at Starmer, which very few people picked up. He said, ah, if, if the honourable gentleman opposite me had his way, he'd take us back into the European Union, wouldn't he? Wouldn't you? And, and that was his payoff line. And you can see that although the Tories may not win in Hartlepool, obviously, I'm convinced they won't. Um, famous last words. But um, um, it, it, they could do some collateral damage to Starmer on this thing that they're going to kind of, it could be a sort of a road test for the, the attack lines are going to run ahead of the next general election on Starmer still being a Remainer. Now, I think a lot of us think that, as Robert said earlier, you know, Brexit may well be over, well over as an issue by the next election. But you know what? The, the continuing row over the vaccine um, uh, uh, supplies suggests that we're going to get more and more of these little flare-ups between us and the European Union. And the blame will certainly not be the way that Remainers hoped it would be. You know, even on things like um, car manufacturers having problems or you know, North Sea fishermen having problems, you can see from the last few weeks that actually the government could possibly turn this round and say, actually, uh, aren't you glad we left? That, and we're still going to have to deal with these people. If we're going to deal with these people, who do you want dealing with them? Do you want us or do you want them? Who, who are you going to give the benefit of the doubt to? And that wider sort of message, not, not that the next general election is going to be about Brexit, but that wider message about whose side is Labour on, whose side are the Tories on, that might be quite interesting. Can I just comment on two things that Paul and Rachel have said there? One is, unless there is a, an ongoing vaccine row, I think the Tories would be very unwise to fight the election as a Brexit election, as a referendum on Brexit, because I say a lot of people are very bored and they want to move on. It's only if the row continues that I think it's, it would be wise of the Tories to heighten the, the issue. And there, Paul Williams would be weak because he is a very strong Remainer. But putting Brexit to one side, I do disagree with what Rachel said in relation to the seat. Governments don't win by elections from the opposition. Uh, it's only happened twice since the Second World War. Um, and one of those was so few months after a general election in a seat that Conservatives had actually swung backwards and forwards anyway, Brickhouse and Spember in 1960, um, we having to go into the real depths. Uh, and therefore, the, the, the burden is clearly on the Labour side, because as I say, governments don't gain by-elections, and particularly in a seat they've never, ever previously held. So although I can see... Um, there is no question because the Conservatives, because the anti-Europeans were uh, so at such a high level, after Barnsley East, this had the largest, Hartlepool had the largest uh, anti-EU vote in terms of political parties because you had both the Brexit Party and the Conservatives. And therefore the potential is there. But a, a year and a half after a general election, no government should actually be gaining seats. Even Tony Blair, he'd won a massive landslide and he was still way ahead in the polls. And he went up to Edisbury and broke the convention of actually a prime minister, a sitting prime minister campaigning in, in a rival seat in a general in a, in a by-election. And he was the first to do it. And it actually, I think it's a bit of an albatross for leaders ever since that they feel they've got to go as leaders and prime ministers to by-elections. Yeah. They never used to. But Blair did it in Edisbury. And even then, with that massive majority, 
Labour didn't win back Eddisbury. Uh, you know, it, 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 it just doesn't happen. And that's why I'm convinced that I will eat my hat if Labour loses Hartlepool. But, I'm not know. going to make the same offer, but I'll be with you because I, I do not believe... The, the, I, I strongly agree with you, your earlier comment, that the Conservatives should pick a local candidate. A, a, there's no question about that. They will be very, very sensible to choose a Hartlepool related candidate and very strongly so in one form or another because one other thing that hasn't been touched on is that the Labour Party in Hartlepool is in a real mess in that if you look at the makeup of the council uh, it's just the Conservatives are the largest single party on the council and then it's just all sorts of groups of Labour Party, ex-Labour Party, ex-ex-Labour Party, Hartlepool Independence and the like. So um, there is a potential there, um, but uh, as I say, governments don't gain by elections almost without exception. I think they should, I think the Conservatives would do really well to choose a, a female candidate, not 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 least because they have so few women in Parliament. Just also, I think there's um, it, it would be good ground for them in that area as well, considering some of Paul Williams' past. Comments. <laughs> Everything that's happening in the news at the moment, I kind of think that it would be a good idea for them to have a female up for that seat. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, I just wanted to ask you as well because there's another fascinating uh, angle to these local elections, which is uh, the Scottish Assembly, Ooh. the Holyrood elections. Yeah. So um, the, the the kind of um, sturgeon salmon saga is coming to an end, how might that affect the election in Scotland and what might happen uh, for the independence movement? It's so fascinating what's happening in Scotland. So um, as, as it stands, the Tories are thought to have um, jumped the gun somewhat in calling for Nicholas Sturgeon to resign before the publication of the independent Hamilton report into whether or not she breached the ministerial code. That, that report came back and said that she was completely cleared of any breach but then a separate Holyrood report um, still had questions for her. But it seems to be that because the Conservatives had called for her resignation so early on in that process that they've kind of given away, so, given away some, some ground and in some ways kind of let Nicola Sturgeon face fewer questions than she would have done had they not have made it so political, I believe. Um, and... She, they, they put forward this. The Conservatives had put forward this motion for um, a, a confidence motion, which Nicola Sturgeon survived. And the polls that have come out since then say that you know the Conservatives may lose as many as eight seats. Anna Sawa, the new Labour leader, is positioning himself quite cleverly in that he abstained on that vote and he was very careful in how he handled it. And he seems to be positioning Scottish Labour to take in some soft SNP votes that have, you know, some of those voters might have questions as to how well Sturgeon has dealt with this period. Um, and some other frustrated Conservative unionists who think that the Scottish Conservatives are, are, are messing up a little bit here. And I think he'll also make child poverty kind of central to his campaign. And interestingly, he's standing very directly against the First Minister in her seat in Glasgow. Um, but the SNP will kind of, you, you can tell this, the election's already starting to get going because they last night said that they would put NHS pay up by 4% in contrast to, 
you know, the much criticised 1% that the um, UK government's proposing for England. Um, but as to how it might affect, and I should say at the end of all this, that the SNP is still on course for um, a big win and to have um, another, um, if not a minority government, then a full majority government in Holyrood. And uh, it's very difficult to state at this point how that's going to affect the independence movement, because I think that as it stands, the, the, their options still remain as um, they can either hold a wildcat, wildcat referendum or continue to ask Boris Johnson for um, a, another vote uh, on independence, to which he can withhold for a very long time yet. It's interesting, isn't it, that the, some of the polls showed that, uh, I think one of the polls this week showed that if Boris Johnson were to withhold support for a referendum, support for independence goes up. Um, and I find that really interesting. That That is the catch-22, uh, really, um, for the PM. Um, does he does he go ahead thinking that actually he can still win this referendum? And some of the polls, obviously, in recent weeks suggest how soft that support for independence is. I mean, really soft. You know, that's without even a campaign. And uh, that's without the, you know, the, the masterstroke of the of the of the no campaign last time was just to play on people's fears of insecurity. What happens to the pound? What happens to the defense? What happens to the queen? What happens to everything? And just that sowing that seed of doubt um, in an era of a pandemic, even further uncertainty, I suspect that will be quite telling in a referendum campaign. But if, you know, if he doesn't go for the referendum, then you can imagine the, the, the support for independence just increasing um, until it almost like it'll blow a gasket and then and then win. I, I think there's um, some interesting cross currents of personalities here. You've got uh, Alex Salmon and Nicola Sturgeon, who in my mind are two of the shrewdest politicians that there have been in the last decade, decade and a half, fighting with each other. But at the same time, Nicola Sturgeon leading a Scottish government in a very shrewd manner. Um, the cross currents in relation to somebody like Boris Johnson, who is extremely unpopular in Scotland, a Tory prime minister from Westminster is unpopular by definition in most of Scotland, but Boris is much more unpopular. Uh, and therefore, if he misplays a hand, uh, it will turn the mood quite markedly. Anna Sawa is somebody who has impressed me from afar so far, uh, and his decision to which Rachel referred to fight Nicola Sturgeon head on in Glasgow, so I think it's an incredibly shrewd uh, action. Very, very clever decision, because essentially the Labour vote has gone down in every Scottish parliamentary election since Parliament in Edinburgh was started, and therefore if the tide is to be turned, it has to be turned by the Scottish Labour Party getting votes back from the SNP. And uh, Anasawa seems to be showing the subtlety and cleverness that it might actually just be able to take on Nicola Sturgeon as one of the other best politicians that we've got around. There's one thing that's been mentioned to me, Robert, is why don't the Tories deploy Rishi Sunak in Scotland? Could that help uh, with the pro-union message? I think... Deploying any Westminster minister is difficult at the moment. You saw the flack that Boris got for going there. Interestingly enough, having done it, 
when Matt Hancock went there, there was far less flack. It was almost there had been no Tory minister up there for so long that it was really breaking down a barrier. You may well find Rishi Sunak going at some stage or another. I would not be at all surprised. And it's not because I know something's going to happen. Um, but after all said and done, sorry, <laughs> after all said and done, if you have the, the, clearly the most popular member of the cabinet um, being able to speak uh, in Scotland, it would be a very shrewd move. The only other cabinet minister that the Tories can deploy is uh, Michael Gove, because not the only one, because obviously you've got a secretary of state, but Michael Gove, because of his background, because of his accent and all the rest of it, um, would be a shrewd deployment up there. Uh, one thing that nobody's touched on, I don't mean just here, but in general, is I do believe that there will be a big debate around whether Scots who are living elsewhere are entitled to vote in the referendum. And it's something that constantly strikes me, is that you listen to the media, the number of Scots voices that you hear based in London. I was watching Scotland's rugby team, men's rugby team, so that I'm not being sexist. There's a women's rugby team as well. But the men's rugby team on Saturday led the two best players, including the captain, don't play for Scottish teams. Their homes are elsewhere. And yet they're proud Scots. Andy Murray lives in Surrey. Are you going to say in future, the next referendum, these people should not be allowed to vote? I think there's a big debate to be had there. Uh, and I think just as Boris needs to be careful, um, Nicola Sturgeon say, I'm going to de deny proud Scots their vote on their country's future. Interesting challenge there. On that note, it's time for the quiz. Hooray! Um, so after Theresa May said this week that her sacking of Gavin Williamson as Defence Secretary meant that senior intelligence chiefs could once again speak freely without fear of leaks... Uh, this week's quiz is all about Gavin Williamson. Oh, good. So just shout the answer if you know it. How did Williamson respond to the Novichok poisoning of former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter, Yulia? He told them to, to go away and shut up, didn't he? Yes, he told Russia to go away and shut up. Yes, correct. I think, I think that's a better phrase than he actually said. But <laughs> uh, Question number two. How did Williamson suggest the UK could deter Spanish ships from trespassing in British waters around Gibraltar? Oh, I've got no well, idea. This was something to do with coastal vessels, I think, but I really don't know. All right. He said, uh, well, he suggested we should fire paintballs at them to scare them <laughs> off. <laughs> An, an, an MOD well, source, secretary, this yeah. well, education secretary. Yeah, an MOD source said at the time that the comments, which was at a meeting with the chief of defence staff, were quote clearly said in jest. <laughs> uh, final question: um, How did Williamson explain the UK being the first country to approve a COVID vaccine for use? Was it the quality of the British education? Mm, not quite. Oh, I British don't know. science, British there's science. A, there's a three-word quote that I'm looking for. Oh, is it, it, a, is it a Dad's Army reference? No, it was quite big at the time, but I, I forgive you for not remembering. Go on. 
Uh, he said that it's because the UK is a quote much better country than France, Belgium. Ah, uh, that States. was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, Rachel, one nil nil. You've won the quiz. <laughs> well done. I thought you were going to ask about the the sharpened carrot. Do you remember that when he said? Um, no, remind us. When it, when he was when he was uh, chief whip, he he said that he would give people the choice between you know the carrot or the stick, but he also found that a sharpened carrot worked really well. Oh God! <laughs> that, that was truly extraordinary. That's the only time I've ever seen a chief whip deliver a speech at a party conference. I, th I thought it was just bizarre. I mean, <laughs> what was that all about? I mean, when you go back and think of that period, it's just so surreal. But anyway, <laughs> there were some interesting party conferences at that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. S simpler times in a way, or maybe not. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. Uh, this will be the last episode before the Easter break, so we'll be back in a few weeks. And we'll just leave you with some nutritional advice from crossbench hereditary peer, Lord Palmer. Noble Lord, for um, that, that response. I'm sure one of the main problems is that the sell-by dates on, on products are, are far, far too cautious. And I remember once eating a biscuit which was 20 years old. It was perfectly edible. <laughs> <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.